If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. Luke chapter number 9. And I want you to put your finger in there and turn back to Matthew chapter 8. So we'll be looking at a few different texts here, uh, but I, I, I promise you that they go hand in hand, and that's the only reason we're doing that. Uh, we're going to be looking at something specifically that many times we don't think through. Um, and I want to start off with this. How many, how many of us have actually started um, really on a journey in life and trying to accomplish something and knowing that we won't be able to get it instantly? Let's say, for example, you want to get a house, right? You're, you're a young couple. You just got married. You want to be able to buy your first home. So what do you need to do? If you have no money in the bank, what do you probably need to do? You need to save some money, right? If you have a lot of debt, what, you, what do you probably have to do? You need to pay that debt off, right? So we do certain things, and we know, hey, you know what? There's going to be something that we're going to have to wait for, so we got to do certain things to get to that point. So we know there's a delay in what, we, what it is that we want, and in that delay, what happens is there's a consistent obedience to certain principles that we have to follow. One of the problems for us when it comes to the Christian life is that we have been called by Christ to do certain things, but the problem for us is we take the things of this world and we use them as the reason why we can't do those things for God. Whatever it is that God's given us on this earth, we many times say, I can't follow you, Lord, until I take care of this. And because we do that, we tend to delay our obedience to whatever he's called us to. This morning, we're going to be looking at delayed obedience. And the three points we're going to look at here are, number one, the commitment in Matthew 8, 18 through 20, and Luke 9, 57, 58. Number two, the delay, Matthew 8, 21 and 22, and Luke 9, 59 through 61. And number three, the realization, Luke 9, 62. So number one, the commitment. Matthew 8, 18 through 20. Look what it says. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road, and this is going to be in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 and 58. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What we find interesting here in this text is that when comparing Matthew and Luke, Matthew gives us specifically who the person is that comes to Jesus. It's a scribe. Luke, on the other hand, gives us someone that all of us can relate to. Nobody in particular, someone comes up and tells this to Jesus. The scribes, ultimately, if you're looking through the text, and this is something that you know, I, I started unpacking this week, they're slightly different from the Pharisees, and, and you have to understand this. They were the ones that really did more of the legal documents, if you will, at that time. So they would sign the contracts for marriage, the divorce, the inheritance, the sale of property, if you will, whereas the Pharisees were more the teachers of that day and age. They interpreted the scripture many times, adding their own textual traditions to the original. 
There are some overlap between the two, but the scribes were known for more or less copying down the word, whereas the Pharisees were known for teaching the word. The statement made is one that really, made to Christ is really one that says, hey, you know what, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. I will do whatever you want me to do, Lord. This is what the scribe actually tells Jesus. And here's the reality. We may say something very similar. And, and, and many of us have probably said something very similar at some point in our lives if we've followed Christ. Maybe it's been out of sincerity. Maybe it's a statement made out of desperation. Or maybe out of just plain ignorance. So out of sincerity, maybe we've come before God and said, you know what, I'm so moved by the gospel message that wherever you want me to go, Lord, I'm going to do. I'm going to go whatever you, where you want me to go, I will go. Whatever you want me to do, I will do. Blank check, Lord, whatever you need from me is yours. Maybe out of sincerity, we've been so moved by Christ that we know because he sacrificed so much on our behalf, we're willing to sacrifice everything for him. Or maybe we have a simple thing that motivates us called being a faithful servant that we know Christ has called us to be. So we want to be that faithful servant and we want Christ to be pleased with us. Maybe we've said this statement, I will follow you, out of desperation. In fact, many, many, if you were to look at people's testimonies, when they've been in some sort of deep sin or struggle and hurt themselves and others, Maybe there's an abuse of alcohol or drugs or a broken relationship. That's when they commit to following Christ. Because at this point, I'm desperate. I can't do anything. And sadly, sometimes it's a tragedy that takes a person to make that commitment to Christ. Maybe it's somebody that's on their deathbed and a person makes this commitment. Lord, if you just save this person, I will do whatever you want me to do. And we promise that we will do anything that Christ asks of us. Maybe we turned to Christ and committed to him because we tried so many different things and they all failed. And out of desperation, I've tried it all. Jesus, you're the only one I have left. We've tried everything and we've forgotten Christ. So we decided, all right, I'm going to try this. Or maybe some of us have committed to Christ out of ignorance. Maybe you've committed to follow God anywhere without really knowing what you're getting into, believer. It seemed like the thing to do. Why? Because there was a conference and everybody came forward and they all prayed and you all felt guilty because there's certain music playing and just as I am 20 times was sung. And you decided this is the moment. This is my moment to commit to follow Christ. But sadly, what ends up happening is you decided to do it simply because it sounded better than everything else you've tried. And you weren't exactly quite sure what you're getting into, but you decided this might be a good option. For some reason, I trusted Jesus and some things have been going wrong in my life. Maybe if I just commit here, it'll go better. And out of ignorance, you said you'd follow him. Because you thought, after all, Jesus is going to just make things better for you. Whatever your reason, and we don't know what the scribe's reason here is in the text. We do know that Jesus answers him with a promise that following him will not always give you the benefits you want. It's not always going to benefit you to follow Christ. 
We don't get to stay, if you will, and Jesus is actually explaining this. I'm giving the modern version. We don't get to stay at the Hilton if you want to follow me. All right? Like, I don't have a place to stay. In fact, nothing is guaranteed for the one that follows me. In fact, homelessness is possibly an option here. Discomfort, rejection from others. Those are just a few of the things you may experience that I am going to experience. Christ's response is one that puts it simply, you aren't going to have everything you want if you want to be a disciple of me. If you want to follow me, you're not going to have everything you want on this earth. But you're going to have everything you need. If you're a faithful follower of Christ, I want you to expect the probability of the following here, okay? Expect, believer, if you're to be a faithful follower of Christ. I'm not talking about the in and out Christianity that a lot of us live. I'm talking about the faithful follower, disciple of Jesus that says, you know what, I'm going to follow him no matter where it takes me. Expect a loss of friendships and relationships. Expect that people will not want to associate with you because you are different. Or because you believe that there's such a thing as Jesus and he is exclusively the only way to heaven. And because you're not loving for tolerating the latest trend that's out there. The latest sin that's tolerated by society, of which pedophilia is next, brothers and sisters. Who would have thought we'd get to this point soon? You will not be praised for that, for standing opposed to the latest sin that's accepted by society. You may have a loss of income, believer, because you decided not to cut corners in your job where others did. You had certain principles that you held to, whereas others cut corners. Or you didn't want to support the latest social media trend that everybody else in your company supported. Believer, this is what you need to expect if you're to be a faithful follower of Christ. Expect spiritual and emotional attacks on you and your family. Understand, father and mother, the way you raise your children following the word of God, there will be a lot of people opposed to that. In fact, you will be labeled an abuser by society for telling them that God's word is the ultimate truth. Your traditional position will be, will be turned into something that is bigoted in society because you hold to something that's outdated. You'll be assaulted to the point of having your children attempted to be turned against you in society. Parents, I want you to think through this, where you send your children to school. And I want you to think beyond this, where they go after school. It is not just one or the other you need to be concerned with. You need to be concerned with both. Who are their associates? Who are their friends? Who are the people that they spend time with? And sadly, a lot of parents, they think, I'm just going to drop my child to this organization and that's going to take care of the discipleship for me. God's called you to disciple your children. I have to disciple my own. I don't expect all the teachers to disciple my children as God's called me first to disciple my own. I want to warn you on this too, believer. All the things you're seeing in society today 
I want you to be aware of being a faithful follower of Christ will bring you potential physical harm. You see all the crazy going on in our world? Don't be surprised by any of that. That shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, what happened to society? Have you read any of your history? It shouldn't shock us. I don't know why it does. Faithful disciples of Jesus Christ face unbelievable persecution and physical torment to the point of losing their lives for their faith. Once many of us come to the realization that it will cost us a lot more than we originally thought, we resort to what others do here in the text. In fact, one of the things that is mentioned right off the bat is in a delay in our obedience. Look at the second point, the delay. Matthew 8, 21 through 22 and Luke 9, 59 through 61. The delay. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then turning to Luke 9, 59 through 61. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the, gospel, the, the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. What's ultimately happening here in the text is this phrase that sticks out right away. First, let me go. First, let me go. It's the delay in obedience. I will follow you, Lord, but, but first, let me get this done. Let me get this other thing done first, and, and, and then I'll follow you. I promise, once I get this done, I'll follow you. How many of us have made that promise? If I just get to this point right here, then I'll follow you, Lord. Th then th that's when I'll obey. And how many of us have lied to the Lord when we've done that? I can tell you right now, a lot of people, when it comes to anything that God gives them, they delay in their obedience. And when God gives them the blessing that they had said, hey, if I do this, I will then follow you, Christ, they still take whatever blessing it is that God's given them and still don't follow through in the obedience. Let me give you a very simple example. When a person's broke financially in the church, many times what happens is, Lord, once I'm better fit, uh, stable financially, I will give more to the church. And guess what happens when they have more money and they finally cleared a lot of that debt? They still don't give more. Why? We have the same heart that we're wrestling against. And we always tell God, Lord, if I just get this first, then I'll do this. And it doesn't happen. Why? Because we're fickle. God's true. And as Scripture says, all men are liars. We don't speak the truth many times. So, so let's, let's look at some of the, the points here in the text. And this is something that an author points out about Jesus actually calling out the dead, burying their dead. It seems like kind of a harsh statement for Jesus to go, hey, listen, let the dead bury the dead. Listen to this. Uh, this commentary. It says, contemporary Jewish funerary, fu uh, funerary customs make possible another reading. The practice of primary burial in which the corpse is placed in a sealed tomb, followed by a secondary burial, I don't know if you knew this, following a 12-month period of decomposition, the bones were collected and reburied in a bone box, is well attested. But with the additional 12 months between burial and reburial, providing for the completion of the work of mourning. According to this reckoning, Jesus' proverbial saying would refer to the physically dead in both instances. Let those already dead in the family 
to rebury their own dead. In either case, Jesus' disrespect for such a venerable practice rooted in Old Testament law is matched only by the authority he manifests by asserting the priority of the claims of discipleship in the kingdom of God. Now, I want to stop for a second and say something here. The mission of being a disciple is more important than merely following the customs of our day. The mission of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is more important than just following the custom of our day, especially when they conflict with the mission itself. This is still true today for us in modern Christianity. Let's, let's unpack this a little practically, okay? Most of us will, will, will have similar statements on this, and there might be some points of disagreement here. I'm not trying to generalize um, just for the sake of generalizing. I, I want to kind of get us to think through some of these things. But most of us will say God comes first, then family, and then all the others, right? Like at least that's a general statement that a lot of us make. But what if we use family and others as the reason we don't want to follow God? What if they're the reason we don't do the things that we should for God? What if they're the reasons we hide behind for why we don't serve God fully? I want you to think about that. Let's break this down. For example, you might be a single person, right? And you say, I can only serve or follow God once I get married. Right? Like, in my single capacity, I can't really serve because I don't have a spouse that will encourage me to read the Word together, to pray together, to follow God together. When I finally have that, that's when I really follow Christ. So using your logic, just throwing this out there, if you never got married, you never need to serve Christ, right? So if you never got married, there's no reason you should serve Christ, I mean, because the one thing you needed was a spouse in order to serve Christ, right? Now, for those of you that are like, oh, great, we went after single people. Well, what about married folks, all right? Let's, let's, let's break this down. You might be married, right? And you feel like you can't serve or follow God because you are so busy, right? You've got to take care of the kids. You've got to make sure they do their sports program. You've got to make sure that you're, you're paying for their better future. You've got to make sure that you're giving them the newest clothes, the newest gadgets. You've got to pay for all the stuff for the home. The mortgage has to get paid. All the other things that you need to get done... So using your logic, if I have kids in the home, I can't really follow Christ. They need to be moving on, and then I can really follow and serve Christ. If I have kids in the home, a mortgage to pay or an education to pay for, I can't really serve or follow God. Those are more important. Notice I didn't say those aren't important. What I'm saying is, do we not use them sometimes as an excuse for why we don't serve Christ? So when can a person follow and serve God? In fact, here's what's interesting. The tension is solved if we look at it through the lens of Scripture rather than just a Western culture. The sad part is a lot of Christians will say, I want to follow Christ, and you know what they really follow? The American dream. Their lens is through the American dream that they submit Christ to, sadly. Lord, you're not really a good father to me unless I have all these things I really want on this earth. I found it really sad. I saw a post on Facebook. 
And the, the, the post had, I'm not probably quoting it directly, but it had this, this concept of Jesus came so you would fulfill your destiny. And it just broke my heart. Jesus did not come for you to fulfill your destiny. You'll exist on this earth to glorify him and the Father. So most of us, as we just talked about earlier, we would, if we were going to break it down even further, we would prioritize God, my immediate family, the church, and then all others. But if you were to look at it through the lens of Scripture, does that match up? And that's my question. My question is not whether you think it's right or I think it's right. Does it match up to the Word of God? That should be the standard. Not just because we've heard it for so many years and so-and-so told us that we should do this in this order and that's the paradigm you follow and we've never really questioned it because that's what we've heard, right? There's a lot of things we follow in the Christian faith that we've just heard from somebody and it sounded really nice, sounded really biblical. And we've never really, as Bereans, went back and checked it out to make sure it actually fits the paradigm. So, so let's just break this down a little bit. Jesus actually told us to honor our father and mother, right? Like he actually says that in the Word. But he also says this, might seem contradictory. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. So remember that whole hiding behind the family as an excuse to serve Christ? Like Jesus goes, I can't do that. You can't. As a disciple, it's, it's an all or nothing thing. Also, just, just so you know, when he's ministering to the multitudes, he makes an incredible statement. And I'm reading from the Amplified Version, Matthew chapter 12. He says this in verse 46. While he was still talking to the crowds, it happened that his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. But Jesus replied to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples and all his other followers, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, by believing in me and following me, is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus does not actually neglect his mother. In fact, right at the end, he gives a priority to one of his disciples, his closest friends, John, to take care of his mother. He doesn't abdicate that responsibility. He makes sure that that happens. But what's interesting is Jesus prioritized the 12 disciples, and out of those three, a 12, he, decide, he prioritized the three that he had the closest relationship with. Peter, James, and John. And that, out of that, he gives the responsibility of John to take care of his mother. So when you trusted Christ, you were placed into a new family. Believer, this is something that we need to start unpacking and thinking through sometimes. And I think we ignore this because we've thought so much as Westerners instead of the way Jesus is teaching us here. When you were born again, you were born into a new family of God. And being born into that new family of God, God now puts you in a totally different category. You are now not in darkness, you are in light. You are not children of darkness, you're children of light. And because you're children of light, you have a responsibility as children of light to be in fellowship with other children of light. The priorities of living for this life have changed to living for things that are eternal, believer. 
Most of us still are living for this life, not the things that are eternal. Oh, we won't say that to anybody. You know, we, we, we try to explain to everybody, yes, I'm, well, I want to follow Jesus. I really care so much about the things that matter eternally. But if we're going to break down our every day, we care more about this life. When you trusted Christ, you were placed into a new family, the family of God. Everyone typically emphasizes the personal relationship with God, but you know what most people don't emphasize in the church? Communal relationship that we have together as a body before Christ. We're given spiritual brothers and sisters who walk alongside us to follow Christ. So, what do we make of where we are in our paradigm? If we're to look at it biblically and the way Jesus actually pulls this out and says, I actually am coming here to divide families. Some of you know this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You have siblings that are not followers of God. You have family members that reject everything that you stand for when it comes to your faith. So where are you to find your fellowship? Well, here's the priority biblically. And I could, I could show you different texts as to why this is the priority. God and his family, your immediate family, and then others. Now, some of you are you're pushing back against it in your mind, and I, and I understand the tension. I'll, I'll break through some of that, I promise. I, I understand there's tension here that I just brought up. So you mean to tell me that I need to serve the church and forget my immediate family? No, no, no that's not at all what I'm saying. And we're going to talk about that. Because I, I know that's, that's the knee-jerk reaction we all have. So Pastor Roman just needs to be at the church all day and never spend time with his kids, and that, that's, no. No. Some of this may seem controversial for us because we're thinking through a Western mindset. But I want you to think through this here. Think of why it would be necessary, going back to that single person illustration, right? Why would it be necessary for that single person to be in community with other children of God? because they would find fellowship to then follow Christ before they're even married. They would find whatever it is they need to follow Christ consistently before they've even found a spouse. And guess where the best place for them to find a spouse would be? In the community of believers. So what about those that are married, right? Like, let's break this one down. If those that are married prioritize God in their marriage... The church essentially becomes vital to both of them. It's not optional. Honey, we're going to church. It's not optional. We're going to be in fellowship with other believers. It's not optional. We want to be around the word of God, not just in our homes, but with other families. And, and, and what I find interesting, and, and this is, forgive me for peering into what I think is speculation, but I think it's evidential many times in people's lives though they don't want to admit it. But the families that say, I don't really know, need to go to church, I, like, that's not for me. We're doing our own thing at home. We make sure we follow, we watch sermons online. We do this other stuff. What many of them do, we use that as an excuse to say they really follow Christ when they don't probably even consistently do things at home with their families. Why do you need other brothers and sisters? To stir you up, to admonish you in the faith. I've said this before when it comes to discipleship groups. I wouldn't be consistent in my Bible reading if I didn't have other people hold me accountable, and neither would you. How do I know that? Most of you have started a Bible reading program just like I have, and you don't finish it by the end of the year. You've read all these other books, and for some reason Satan got you really good. He distracted you with all these other wonderful books to read, and you went through things that are this thick, some of you. But the Bible, oh man, it's too hard. 
I got to Leviticus and it destroyed me. I can't do it. But that's how, that's how distracted we are. That's how we have these tendencies to say, I'm going to do these things and we don't follow through. God knows who we are. And that's why Christ loved the church and he gave us a body to be a part of. And that person, you're going, man, that's annoying. Why does pastor keep saying that I need to read the word? Like he says that all the time. Why do I say that? Because some of you have actually come up to me and said to me after you've been reading consistently, hey, I don't struggle with anxiety as much. Wow. Who would have thought? Just simply being in the word alleviates anxiety. It's your spiritual medicine, brothers and sisters. It's the very thing you need. And if you're lacking in prayer, be more consistent. But here's what's going to happen. If you want to be more consistent in prayer, find other people that need to pray as well. And when you both pray, when you gather in a group, you're going to be more consistent in doing that as well. If you want to battle sin, and, and, and as you've read through recently, Jesus fought Satan off in temptation by quoting the Word of God. The irony I found in it was the first temptation of turning the stones into bread. Jesus quotes the Word of God that says, you can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The irony was just phenomenal there. I'm quoting the Word of God to prove that the Word of God matters. That's exactly what Jesus did. So imagine with me, a family that follows Christ, they want to be an integral part of the church, they love other brothers and sisters, they now train their children differently. They, they buy their children good gifts, but all of that is under the umbrella of God's a good father and he takes care of us. And we want to be good parents to take care of you. They work hard, but they make time for the things that matter, discipling their children. Why? Because God and his family are priority to them. It's not in conflict. It's a priority. It should not be family against the church. And sadly, that's what happens in many churches. The church doesn't care about us. We're doing our own thing. Well, the question is, are you a part of the family of God? And why are you neglecting fellowship with the people of God? The two work together as faithful disciples of Christ in the local body of believers to nurture and train their children in the admonition of the Lord. So we're not, we're not talking about a church context here, and I just want to make sure I clear this up, okay? We're not talking about a church context here where people those are, that are in ministry are serving in a church that gives them no time for their families, okay? Like some of you, you go there, you're like, oh man, so that means like I got to spend all my time in the church and that's what God's... No, that's not what we're talking about here. And we need to make sure we clear that up right away. Many, many... A preacher got this one wrong because their church context was incorrect. They went off on their own tangent and really didn't find fellowship with other believers. They just preached the word and were, how can I say this, lone rangers? And so they didn't lead their families well because nobody confronted them on, hey, you need to make sure you put it all in balance here. But a healthy God-centered church encourages the family to worship together. Time for parents with their children. Not just where one stays busy doing the things of the Lord with neglect of family. That's not what we're talking about here. The very husband and wife who are part of the family of God raise their children to serve and follow God when they prioritize the family of God. It's not in conflict, believer. I know you and I tend to think that it is. It's not. 
Not if you and I are in the Word of God and we're going, hey, here's what God convicted me. I'm doing terrible as a parent here. What do you think? Yeah, I'm doing terrible here too. Or hey, you know what? Here's what I'm encouraged about. I started doing this and God's been changing these things in my life. Man, you really should do this. This is incredible. Like it made a difference in my kids' lives. That's how it works. Because our priority should not be passing down the physical lineage but the spiritual lineage. So, so I want to ask you, believer, is your goal to pass on your last name? Or is your goal to pass on Christ? And you have to answer that honestly. You, you can't just go looking at everybody else and go, well, I know what they're pursuing. Well, I'm asking you to, to ask yourself before God, how am I doing this? Like when I sit down with my spouse and we talk about raising our kids, like what are we thinking? What are we aiming for? What does our checkbook say that we care about? What does the time spent with the kids after school look like? What does the time spent on weekends look like? We care many times to pass down the possessions to our children, but the many times we forget to neglect and neglect to pass down the greatest treasure, which is Jesus Christ. We give them everything else. So here's something I want, to, I want you to think about, believer. Our relationship with God actually enhances our relationship with others. It enhances our relationship with others. If our service to Christ alienates us from the body of Christ or the responsibilities that we have as parents, then we're not right in our relationship with God, period. You can't go, I'm right with God, but I don't love my brothers and sisters in the church at all. I don't want to be around them at all. I love God, but I don't really care about doing this discipleship thing at home. Like, what's the point of trying to train my kids? After all, God, God does the choosing, right? What do I need to do? That's horrible theology that you and I believe. And sadly, a lot of the church believes that today. Well, it's okay. I don't really need to church, go to church. I don't really need to spend time with them. Like, that's for them. They need it. Well, let me tell you, believer, the people that reject discipleship the most need it the most. They're the ones that are furthest away from God and the kingdom. And they will not be a vessel that God can use until they understand, I need to humble myself and realize I need Christ just as much as that other guy that's passionately following him. It should bother you, believer, when you're not in fellowship with others in the church. It should bother you. And if it doesn't, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. Christ did not call you on a personal secret mission to do something for him apart from the body of Christ. He called you into a community, a local body of believers that he expects for you to be a part of and be involved with. Most marriages and homes in the church would flourish if both, both spouses prioritized the local body of believers. And they... Prioritize those things by being more in tune with the reading, in prayer, in singing, in study. Do you realize your singing is an act of worship before God? Sadly, so many of us, we think of praise and worship music, but we don't think of it in relation to us in our walk with God. Oh, that's a great song, you know, on the queue in my car. But in church, man, you, you rarely say two words. Why? You're around brothers and sisters. 
As much as I know we're more Baptists, man, I, I remember Dan Janicki. He didn't hold it in. He was the only one clapping sometimes. I can tell you from personal experience, believer, that when I'm around people in this church that really want to follow God and they want to talk about the things of God, that that encouraged me to go home and be a better father. That encourages me to be a better spouse at home, to be a better leader in my family. And I need it just as much as you do. The goal of the adversary many times is to sow discord in the church to where you and I start assuming things about one another that are not true. Well, they haven't said anything to me for a while. They must not love me. I haven't seen this person for three months. They probably don't care about anybody in this church anymore. Those are all statements that are really swirling in our minds many times. Or so-and-so hasn't called me, they must not care. Do you know that person might have been praying for you consistently for months? Because they didn't mention you directly does not mean that they didn't care. Be careful what you start believing. And that's one of the reasons why I think what happens for a lot of us in the church is we start assuming things because we've never had conversations with people directly. And when we have those conversations directly, what we tend to find out, and this happens probably in more relationships than anybody would realize, there's a lot of misunderstandings. It's not all animosity that somebody had. It's not always because they're out to get us. Maybe they just really did. They cared to, 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 to take care of somebody in their home. That's why they didn't attend. Maybe they had some things going on and they're going through a rough time in life. And you know what? Nobody's, nobody's reached out and they're really hoping for that. It's important that we do that. But also be understanding that when somebody doesn't connect with you or reach out to you, you have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And that's Jesus. Last time I checked, it's him you're following. It's not your brother or sister. They're necessary, but they're not the ultimate. The goal of the adversary is to sow discord in the church to where people are in tension and they don't want to fellowship one, with one another. But I want to let the Word of God ultimately speak to you and me on this, and I won't comment on this. I'm just going to read the text. Because a love for the family of God is a litmus test for a love for God. A love for the family of God is a litmus test for the love that we have towards God. Listen to this in 1 John chapter 4. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I don't think I need to break it down. I don't think there's some deep meaning here. It's very clear what John is saying. So, so let, me, let, me, let me finish this section off with, be careful with let me first as your reason for not doing things for Christ. Let, let me first do this, and then I'll follow you, Christ. Because many times it's a cop-out. So we don't love God the way we ought to or his family. So number three, the realization. Realization, Luke 9, 62. But Jesus said to him, No one having, it, having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So let me, let me start right, right off the bat with Jesus' statement here. 
and realize, I want you to realize something, and I need to realize something. There's no such thing as delayed obedience when it comes to being a follower of Christ. There's no delayed obedience. There's no, but let me first. You can't put off following Christ. He demands immediate obedience. You are either in or you're out. Stop playing games, believer. Stop with the distractions that keep you and me from following Christ the way we ought to. Preach the king. Preach Christ to others. In fact, that's what he says earlier, preach the kingdom. In order for there to be a kingdom, there needs to be a king. Guess who that king is? It's Jesus. You and I will one day reign with him, so why are we not spending more time with other people that will be reigning alongside with us? He's not going to give you your own little hut somewhere isolated in the kingdom. You're going to be reigning with other believers. And if we know that we're to be reigning with him, why don't we proclaim him to others? Here's how I know Paul understood what Jesus said here. And I love this connection I saw this week. Paul had this in mind in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Listen to this. And I know we've, we know this verse. Many of us have quoted it. Not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul got it. Paul said, forget this. That's not worth pursuing. Christ is worth pursuing. I'm all in. So in conclusion... Maybe you don't have to answer this question the way that I do, but I think most of us, if we're to be honest, we have this in our lives. What delays your obedience? What delays your obedience? What delays your obedience to Christ? Is it another church member? Maybe a spouse who's not following God as they should? So you, you, you go, well, I can't really obey God here because my spouse isn't exactly aligned with this as much. So that's the reason you don't follow fully. Scripture actually says, I believe it's in 1 Peter, that wives, you have, you have an opportunity to win over your husband that might not be following God. So that doesn't give you an excuse and me an excuse to not follow God because our spouses aren't following God or others in the church aren't following God. Is your family and your obligations to them, is that what delays your obedience to Christ? Like, have you gotten too busy to give God what's due to him? I got too many other things going on. I just can't. I can't help here. I can't do this for you, Lord. I can't really share the gospel with other people. I don't have time for that. I got all this other stuff I got to get done. Or is it just your own personal excuses? I just can't right now. I'm too young. I'm too old. Whichever one on the spectrum you are. I'm not smart enough. Too broke, I'm too busy. Whatever the excuse is, right? It's your own personal excuse. I got to get this done first, and, and then, then I will. And, and let me ask you, if you've ever made that commitment to God, like, and you haven't followed through, why not? Did Christ not richly bless you? 
God has given you the Holy Spirit to enable obedience, and we need to stop resisting and be in the Word to pray, to be in fellowship with other believers. You need that more than you realize. That's why I'm so glad to see so many of you this morning, because this is what we need. If you stopped reading, get back into the reading program. Small groups, by the way, will be back in September, so please join us again. If you're interested in D groups, come talk to me. I know there's a few that have been asking, and I promise you I will explain more of that in detail if you have something like that you'd really be interested in doing. By the way, just giving you this disclaimer right off the bat, D groups is not like your regular Bible study that you attend every week. D groups is you sign a covenant and commit that you're going to follow through for a full year, no matter what. So, we're taking discipleship seriously. Hence, Jesus' words are what they say, and we're going to follow that. Anything we do as a family of God to store our affections for God will help us in being faithful followers of Christ. We have to be focused on the end goal, and that is making much of Christ to those around us. If we don't know Christ, we need to believe the gospel message, that he came, he died, he rose again the third day for our sin, and he conquered death in the grave that we willingly give up our lives to serve him as our Lord and King for his name and his fame.